Our scripture reader today is Mary Colley. Uh, come on up, Mary. She's going to be reading uh, Luke 18. Uh, you're getting applause here. <clears throat> Luke 18, 35 through 43. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want to do, me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mary. Uh, so we, we have been just in a kind of a little mini-series, uh, selected passages uh, from the Gospel of, of Luke. And uh, today we are in uh, Luke 18. And then, as I said a minute ago, Advent uh, begins next Sunday. So this is uh, the end of this little uh, uh, time in, in the Gospel of Luke. But if we were thinking about the big picture in the Gospel of Luke, um, as we come to chapter 18, uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, uh, as you got towards the end of chapter 9, there's a, a phrase that most commentators look back at. And it's this, it's this uh, uh, kind of a significant little phrase. And it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem or set his face towards Jerusalem. And as you read through the Gospel of Luke, that little, that little phrase at the end of chapter 9 is kind of like a pivot point in the Gospel of Luke. And it goes from uh, Jesus being revealed, Jesus uh, kind of in this, in this uh, who, who is he kind of a thing. From chapter 9, it's this uh, intentional movement towards Jerusalem. Now, it's not always directly like this physical movement towards Jerusalem, but the storyline shifts and now it's like, that. What, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Well, G Jesus, Jesus knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He, he's going to, to lose his life. He's going to, to go and, and, and pay for the sins of the world. And so as, as Jesus, in chapter 9, sets his face to go to Jerusalem, the tone, the, the focus, the intentionality of the Gospel of Luke uh, shifts a little bit. It, it takes on a more uh, intentional demeanor. And over the course, I mean, maybe you know this, but it's not until chapter 19 that Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem. So in chapter 9, he says he sets his face towards Jerusalem, but he doesn't get there until chapter 19. So in these 10 chapters in between, uh, there's a, a lot of interesting interactions. Uh, some commentators refer to these 10 chapters as the hard sayings of Jesus. And uh, in, this, in, these, in these chapters, he has hard conversations with his disciples. He has hard conversations with the Pharisees. It ranges a whole bunch of, you know, the, the, it's a whole range of issues. Uh, the kingdom of God, children, all, all, all kinds of things uh, get talked about. And as we come to our text here at the end of chapter 18, we see in verse 35 that Jesus is on the move again. 
So back in chapter 9, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And there's been this, uh, again, not always like directly towards Jerusalem in a physical manner, but the storyline is moving towards Jerusalem. And in chapter 18, we find out that he's on his way to Jericho. Now, Jericho uh, is less than 13 miles from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is where Jesus will be arrested, where he will suffer and die for the sin of the world. And if you have your Bible open and you just turn a page or two, you're going to see the triumphal entry uh, in chapter 19. So uh, next chapter, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He enters into the last week, Passion Week, uh, where Jesus uh, enters on one day to the praise of all the people. And then within a week, he is uh, hung, hung on a cross. And so this is just 13 miles from Jerusalem. In Luke's account, it's just one chapter away from the triumphal entry. Um, so the reality of this, this movement of the story, it just heightens everything in these chapters of Luke. Uh, the time is near, and Jesus is really, he's well aware of that. So what is he up to here at the end of chapter 18? Well, I titled the sermon today, Jesus and Blindness. So first... Um, the, the material world. Um, blindness. Uh, may, maybe you have someone in your family uh, who is blind, or uh, maybe you have uh, dealt with some vision issues yourself. Uh, but blindness was apparently quite common, a quite com common problem in, in Palestine in Jesus' day. Um, and, and there was not good remedies. Usually someone who was blind was, was never healed. Uh, there was a city uh, in that, uh, at that time uh, in the world called Lydia. And uh, that, 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 the saying in that city was that everyone there was either blind or had only one eye. So you, you thought living in the UP was bad. Like th th this city, this city, everybody's blind or has one eye. There, there's a city, Jaffa. In, in, this, in the city of Jaffa, there were 500 blind people out of a population of 5,000. That's 10%. 10% of, of that population was blind. Well, in Leviticus chapter 19 in the Old Testament, God clearly calls his people to be the kind of people who care for the blind. Now, blind is not the only category, but it's one of the categories. And God looks at his people, this group of people that he is calling out, and he says to these people, like, you, you, if you're going to be my people, you're going to be the kind of people who do this, who, who care for, for the blind. But there was a cultural and even a religious stigma against blindness. Now, this often happens with a lot of disabilities. Uh, I've, I've shared this story before, but uh, several years ago, when I had the opportunity to go to the Holy Land, got to spend some time in Palestine. And uh, the guy's house that we stayed at, uh, his name was Abdullah, and he had started uh, something called the Smile Center. And he started the Smile Center because he realized that uh, people with disabilities were often neglected. They were often uh, neglected by their own families, put on the side of the road. They had no, no opportunity, no, no way to, to make a living, no way to, to be cared for. And so he started this, this center, the Smile Center, uh, because their culture, their society, had such a low view of people uh, with disability. Um, and that was just a few years ago. And it was certainly a problem in, in the first century. Um, 
there's another account in the, New, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, in John chapter 9, where another man who was blind was healed of his blindness. And when there's an interaction about this man's blindness, uh, Jesus and his disciples, they're, 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 de- they're dealing with this. And, and the disciples ask Jesus a question. In John chapter 9, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, do you see the assumption of the disciples? The assumption was that if this, if this guy was born blind, so, somebody made a mistake that, that earned that, that punishment. There, there's, there's some sort of a, a reason for it. So it was a common belief that those who were blind deserved their blindness. Many people thought it was a consequence of sin, either by the individual themselves or because of something that their parents did. Now, you might say that's so archaic, but we do this. We, we, we do it still today. What, what goes through your mind when something goes wrong? Most of us want there to be a direct cause for why something went wrong. When, when you have a trial in your life or a diagnosis uh, that is, that is a, a bad diagnosis or an accident, a really frequent question that comes to our minds is, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? You see, we're relating the hardships, the challenges, with some sort of an action that deserves it. Uh, the, the story of Job. Uh, there's a, a whole book of the Bible called Job. And that, that book, uh, that extended story, that narrative, uh, tracks this story of a guy named Job who ends up just going through all kinds of terrible, terrible trials. I mean, the worst trials you can think of. And he endures all of these things. And what we know, Job didn't know this, but what we know is that God actually allowed these trials into Job's life as as somewhat of a a demonstration of Job's faithfulness. That Job would would navigate these trials and Job would do it with incredible faithfulness. But Job doesn't know that. And Job has all of these trials happening to him. And Job has these friends. And we shouldn't even call them friends. But he has these friends that sit down with him. And they all basically say, okay, Job, let's, let's, let's get real. Let's get authentic. Let's get transparent. What's the hidden sin? This many bad things would not be happening to you unless you had something to do with it. Unless God was punishing you for something you did. And Job's like, guys, like, like literally every, everything in my life, like I'm laying bare before the Lord. Like I, I don't have any known hidden sin. I, 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 don't, I haven't committed these, these kinds of acts. And his friends won't let go. They won't let up. And in the story of Job, God in his grace, God speaks up. And God says, your friends are idiots. He says, they're not helping you at all. They, they don't understand what's going on here. But it all points to this this reality or this mentality that we have when things go wrong, what did I do to deserve this? Well, regardless of the reason, blind people in this culture were often put out, they were ignored, they were scolded. I mean, we see right in this this account, you heard it read just a moment ago, but in verse 39, as this blind man is calling out to Jesus, they they tell him to shut up. They they tell him to be quiet, to, to be silent. Because this man was blind, he was relegated to a life of begging. He is just sitting there waiting for something to happen. 
There's nothing, really nothing he could do to improve his condition. Well, then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Jesus heals his sight. And, you know, Jesus is is giving us this small snapshot of what the final kingdom is going to look like. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, I've uh, been been, uh, a lead pastor for 15 years. And over the course of 15 years, that's that's a lot of sermons. And there's a lot of things that I've said that I probably don't remember that I said. Um, but there are these things that stick. There are these ideas that you come across when you're preparing for a sermon, and it's like it's an idea that sticks, and it just, it just, it just never really leaves your, your orientation of, of the way that God is at work in the world. And I remember years and years ago, this idea that when Jesus performs a miracle, he is bringing the kingdom to bear in that one little spot. That in that one little spot where something is wrong, and Jesus comes and he makes it right, It's like bringing the kingdom of God to bear on that one little thing. And it's like, he's going to come and do it all. He's going to come and make all things new. But when he performs these miracles, it's like him pulling the curtain back and like, watch, watch that little spot. See see what's going to happen? In this one little spot, bringing the kingdom to bear. It's Jesus reversing the effects of the curse in that one specific way. So yes, Jesus spiritually healed this man, and we're going to talk more about that in a second. But I don't want you to miss that Jesus healed him physically. You know, sometimes religious people can get so spiritual that we miss the tangible, physical, personal ministry of Jesus. Jesus sometimes touches people and heals them. Sometimes he just he has the, the patience to stop what he's doing and, and to listen to them and to be present with them as they share the severity of what they're going through. Jesus has a, a physical, tangible, personal ministry. And when he heals people, he often physically heals them. And it changes their life. This guy goes from being blind to having his sight restored. The Bible teaches us time and time again that the material world is not inherently bad. If you were to turn all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you're going to see that as the Bible gives us the creation account, what it says to us is everything that it was all good. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. It was all good. But God is letting us in on something. The world we live in is broken. We live in a broken world. We just spent some time over the last couple months going through Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, we find out that all of creation is groaning. All of creation is is suffering. It's, It's feeling the weight of the effects of sin. That that good, good creation of Genesis 1 and 2 was vandalized when sin showed up in Genesis chapter 3. And Romans 8 says, with such graphic language, that, the, that creation is groaning and creation is waiting. Creation is waiting for Jesus to return and make all things new. And guess what? Christians actually have the audacity to believe that God is going to do it. That he really is going to come back and restore this world. And it makes us long for it. It makes us groan for it. We cannot wait for all things to be made new. We know we cannot totally fix the problem. We know that all of our efforts 
uh, as, as much as we could try to fix, to fix the problems of the world, that the problems are so deeply rooted, only Jesus can do that. He's the only one who can truly fix the problem. But in the meantime, we should be active. We should be active in caring for what God has created, caring for the earth, the environment that, uh, of, of, of this planet, waste, recycling, the, the, the idea that we actually have an eye towards being stewards of this creation that God gave to us. You know, in those first two chapters of Genesis, he says to humanity, I'm going to give you dominion over this earth. You, you have responsibility for this earth. You know, it's, it's similar. God gives parents dominion over their children, you might say. Do, do you think that parents' dominion over their children should be done with care? Should be, should be done as, as stewards of these little lives that we want to see grow up and be formed into the image of Jesus? You think that a parent's dominion over their kids, might, might, maybe that's the right posture? Well, when God says to us that he gives us dominion over the earth, we should view that as stewards of this place, that we have responsibility for how we take care of it and your body, our physical bodies. And I know this conversation can be uncomfortable, but what we eat, how much we eat, exercise, addictions, all, all of the things about this physical body that God entrusts to us. He says to you, this is, this is your body. This, you, it might refer to us as a tent, but it's our tent. It's our, it's our body. And we have a responsibility to be stewards of our body. This, this concept of the material world is something that the Bible speaks very highly of, not just in Genesis 1 and 2, but throughout the Bible. A, a couple quotes from church history. So Augustine, he was uh, born in the 4th century. He says that creatures form an interrelated whole that has a wonderful order and beauty to bring about the peace of the universe. So Augustine in the 4th century says that everything that's been created, there's this interrelated whole that, that we participate in, that there's this wonderful order and beauty, and it brings peace to the universe. Thomas Aquinas was around in the 13th century, and he said God created living and non-living entities in relation to one another to achieve their common good, their internal sustainability of the world. So in the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, a great theologian, is, is saying God is at work in the world, and he created things, and there's this, there's this interaction there's this responsibility that we have an eye towards the other. And he actually says living and non-living entities. Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century, this is a quote, God instilled in each creature a natural inclination toward the good of the whole, so each is inclined according to its nature, intellectually, sensitively, or naturally, to the common good of all. Their common good is the internal sustainability of the world, while their ultimate good is God. So 4th century, 13th century, 20th century, the, the, the teaching of Christianity has been this eye towards that the, the, what God created, not just human beings, that what God created matters. And there's actually a, a right and good relationship between all the things that God created. 
And going back to Augustine again, this is a quote from him. He said, what God sees as wondrously good, humans should also see as wondrously good. They should move beyond their greed and value natural beings intrinsically for themselves and their place in the orderly scheme of creation. The historic teaching of Christianity values the physical world, values the material world. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That's what the New Testament teaches us, is that the body that you are in right now, if you are in Christ, on the last day, your body, it'll be transformed, but it will be your body. Your physical body is going to be transformed. And you might not think that's good news, but it is good news. He's going to do it. Sometimes we can become functional. What, 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 a problem that a lot of the material in the New Testament is wrestling with is something called Gnosticism. And, and, and Gnosticism is this idea that the material things are bad and the spiritual things are good. And so you, you, know, you kind of have to interact with the material. And so you can do anything you want with the material because that's bad anyway. You just try to keep your soul clean. You just try to keep your spirit clean. And part of what the New Testament authors are doing is helping us realize that that is a misunderstanding of the way that God's at work in the world. God cares about the physical and the spiritual. That we sometimes are actually functional Gnostics. That we actually do think of the material as bad and the spiritual as, as good. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The kingdom of God will be where the spiritual and the physical are brought together in harmony, right, as originally designed. One of those is not left off for the sake of the other. Think about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was resurrected in his physical body. He could be touched. The Bible is constantly affirming the material world, the physical world. God created it, and it was good. It was very, very good. But it's been scarred. It's been vandalized. But this, this idea of the world is good is one of the reasons why Christians have always cared about physical ministry. Maybe you're familiar with the, the Latin word uh, H-O-S-P. But the Latin word hosp is the word for traveler. And Christians started hospitals. For, for, for people that were in need, they started hotels. They started medical clinics. They started free medical clinics. C Christians initiated these ideas in, a, in an effort to say pe people need help. In, in 325, uh, the, uh, the, um, Constantine's, the, the, the conclusion of that council was, wherever there's a cathedral, there needs to be a clinic. Do you hear that? Wherever there's a cathedral, there needs to be a medical clinic. There needs to be care for the physical too. It, it was a natural connection, and it should be for us. It's all rooted in these words of Jesus where he says, I was sick and you visited me. Remember when he says that? Whatever you have done to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. The story of the Good Samaritan. James, a little bit later in the New Testament, he writes it this way in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. He says, don't say to somebody, go be warmed or go be filled. Look, Christians have never been encouraged to think or act in a way that ignores the real, material, physical stuff of life. Jesus cared about that. And when he sees this blind man, he cares about that physical reality. He cares about the fact that this man is literally blind, physically blind. 
Jesus cared about the poor. Yes, the spiritually poor, but the economically poor. He cared about the spiritually sick, but yes, also the physically sick. He cared about the spiritually blind and the physically blind. And man, we should too. Now, what's, what's, what's the, uh, the rest of the story in, in these few verses? Well, Jesus is, is, is revealing something. And Luke uh, gives us this account to help us see it. So it appears to me that as we read these verses in Luke 18, that, that Luke wants us to connect this story with a story that he just shared. So if you have your Bibles open and you just kind of scroll back your eyes there, a couple of verses, back to verse 18. Uh, there's an account where Jesus interacts with, you know, your Bible might have subtitles, and mine, mine does, and it says the rich ruler. Some say the rich young ruler. And there's an account here over these 12 or 13 verses where Jesus interacts with this young, rich ruler. And we don't have a lot of details as to what makes him a ruler. Uh, we don't have his net worth. Uh, but we do have indications that he was rich and young and he had some level of significant cultural power. So in other words, he had everything the world could offer. He had money, power, youth. If you hear what he has to say about himself, he even has morality. He's a good guy. He, he tries to follow the law of God, does a lot of good deeds, even teachability. You, you read through that, that, that account and he actually comes to Jesus and he's like, Teach me. Like, help me understand. So that, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good set of, set of uh, things to be said about a person. Pretty good character. Money, I mean, money, power, youth, morality, and teachability. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of good stuff. And yet, how does that story end? Jesus, Jesus turns him away. Jesus turns him away. Here's Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Nothing, nothing to offer. And yet Jesus welcomes him. Why? Well, this blind beggar hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. But look at his response. So if you hop back up to our verses, you see in verse 37, you know, he, he wants to know what's going on. In verse 37, they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. But look at what he says. In response to the news about Jesus of Nazareth, he says, Jesus, son of David. He uses this phrase, son of David, and the phrase son of David is so messianic. That, that is a phrase that is so loaded, if you are familiar with the Old Testament. The blind man is saying, Messiah, have mercy on me. That is not what he was told. What he was told was Jesus of Nazareth is here. Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. But he puts the pieces together and he says, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. How did he know? Almost no one was talking that way about Jesus at this point in time. Almost no one had put those pieces together. Here's what's most likely. Somewhere before this moment, the blind man heard about Jesus. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he saw impressive miracles. He was blind. He didn't see miracles. 
He heard about Jesus somewhere along the way. And in the entire Gospel of Luke, this account, it's just a couple weeks before Jesus' death, is the very first time that anybody refers to Jesus as the son of David. And it's a blind man. Isn't that humbling? Isn't that humbling? And we can find so much confidence in our abilities. Think again of the rich young ruler in verses 18 through 30. All those resources, and he was unable to give them up. He was unable to give up his confidence in his possessions and to actually trust in Christ alone. And now here we see a weak, poor beggar who is all in. Now, let me guess what you might be saying. Well, of course he would. What does he have to lose? Would, would you consider that maybe that's the exact point? Maybe, maybe that's the whole point. That the man's physical blindness paved the way for his spiritual sight. For, for so many of us, our physical sight or our physical resources, they are the very things that keep us in spiritual blindness. If you look at the blind man and say, well, no wonder he trusted Christ. He had nothing else. Then guess what? That means that the blind man is far more blessed than any of us. Because he has been stripped down to the place where he actually sees that he is a man in need. That he is a person who is in desperate need. You know, the Bible is often hinting at this. We have so many entanglements, so many resources, and they can blind us. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, there's this language where it's talking about following. It's, it's, it's this idea of they've just talked about all these, all these people of God who've walked in faith. And then the author of Hebrews says, So, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily besets us. Well, category two is sin. So lay aside your sin. Okay, like, I think we're all going to say, I get that. I get that. Let's lay aside our sin. But what are these weights? What are these weights that, 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 that weigh us down, that entangle us, that prevent us from actually being able to follow Jesus? Have you considered that it might be your resources? It might be your abilities? It might be all the stuff you've got? That maybe like the rich young ruler, the idea of saying, to put my whole hope in Jesus? Don't you know what I got in the bank? Don't you know my health is good? Don't you know how much I read every week? Don't you know the podcasts I listen to? Don't you know all the theology I know? All of our resources. If you look at the blind man and say, well, of course, what does he have to lose? Well, that, that's the point. He actually sees the reality of his situation. Jesus wanted to talk to Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus is calling out in faith. As you see in verse 42, he's calling out in desperation. Verses 38 and 39, he is yelling. He is yelling and they're telling him to shut up and he is yelling. Jesus knows why this beggar is calling out because he's heard the news of Jesus and he believes it. This blind man understands that Jesus can rescue and that is all he needs to know. So Jesus stops and he wants to talk to Bartimaeus. Now, if you're wondering why we know his name's Bartimaeus, Mark's account in, in chapter 10 of Mark. 
uh, he has the same account, and he, he names him as Bartimaeus. So in verse 40, Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And, and the beggar says, literally, I wish to receive my sight. Jesus answers back, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And the beggar gets immediate sight. Now, whether we can realize it or not, this is a huge moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because early in Jesus' ministry, he actually begins his ministry with this public reading of a passage from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And it defines the Messiah's ministry. And Jesus says, this is what I'm going to be about. And as he reads that passage in, 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 uh, from Isaiah, he says that the Messiah will proclaim good news to the poor. He will set the captives, the oppressed, free. And he will give sight to the blind. And as this blind man yells out, Son of David, in other words, Messiah, have mercy on me. Jesus walks over and does a very Messiah-like thing and gives him sight. Jesus is just a couple weeks from his crucifixion and his resurrection, and he is with urgency declaring that he's the one and only Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. And a blind man gets it. Have you been willing to come to Jesus? And instead of saying, what must I do? Saying, have, on, have mercy on me. I can't do anything unless you do something first. Seeing your inability is the first sign of real spiritual sight. Seeing that you don't have anything else to offer. Instead of coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do? Which that's, that's what the young rich ruler said. Have you come to Jesus and said, have mercy on me? Well, how does this account in Luke 18 end? Well, the thing that the rich young ruler in the earlier account could not do, leave everything and follow Jesus, is exactly what the beggar does. Why does the beggar do it and the ruler not do it? Well, because the beggar's ability to see spiritually makes following Jesus the most, it makes it the most logical thing in the world. Chapter 18 has been hammering this idea. Early in the chapter, we run into a tax collector who does it. Then we run into children in the middle of the chapter where Jesus makes this case. Then we have the rich young ruler who doesn't do it. And now we have a blind man who does. Jesus is saying this. When you, if you, truly understand who I am, what I'm bringing, then my invitation to the kingdom, if you understand that, you will not try to earn your way in. You will ask Jesus to help you, and that's it. You will just ask Jesus to help you. All you need is need, but most people don't have it. Look again at verses 38 through 41. The blind, the blind beggar cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. You see the, the, the desperation, the passion with which he cries out? He says, I can't do anything. I can't do anything for you. Would you have mercy on me? Would, would you be the one who gives what I desperately need? And Jesus responds in verse 42, your faith has made you well. Literally, that could be translated, your faith has saved you. 
And, and you look at how was he made well? How, how has he been saved? Physically? You bet. His eyes have been fixed. He, he, he can see. Relationally? He is alone by himself on the side of the road begging for pennies and he gets up after he is healed by Jesus. He gets up and he is part of the people following Jesus. So there's a, a relational restoration and then he is spiritually made well. He is spiritually saved. Immediately he receives his sight and does what? Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And what does he do? I love the picture in verse 43. The blind beggar, he, he, you know, just like the disciples, it was, he was spiritually blind. But when he saw Jesus, he asked Jesus for help. And then he left everything to follow Jesus. Look at the impact it had on other people. In verse 43, it says that, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. You think we need each other's stories? You think we need to hear about each other's wins and, pre- and perseverance? The way that God's at work in the hearts of each other? Man, when we follow Jesus, we model something so powerful for those that are watching. This guy, he asked Jesus for help. And then he left everything to follow him. Have you done that? See, this is when Jesus turns the lights on. He says he's the light of the world, John chapter 8. And you know, Advent begins next Sunday. And the idea of Advent is actually that we start in the dark. And we end with the light of the world having arrived. Have you seen it? Have you seen him? If you really have, then listen, leaving everything, all your hopes and all your agendas, realizing that you are the one who is in desperate need, leaving all that stuff behind to follow him is the most logical response in the world. Ask Jesus to save you and then follow him with everything you got. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this uh, story of Bartimaeus. And what a beautiful example of someone who literally had nothing and how his lack of resources just, it, 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 it revealed to him his desperate need. God, all of our money, all of our education, all of our resources, God, would you, just, would you help us right now collectively to recognize how much they might blind us? How much they might cause us to think of Jesus as a good idea, as a good backup plan, as some sort of fire insurance, but not our one true hope. To not actually have walked away from all the other self-salvation projects and put our hope in Christ alone. We we need your help. We, We need spiritual sight. Would you help us to run to you and follow you with everything we got?